Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And let us shout out some new patrons. Kenneth and Audrey, who were patrons before, but upgraded to the Dirt After Dark tier. Uh, And Brianna, thank you so much for supporting the show, all of you. Thank you. And we hope that y'all enjoy the bonus content. Yes, indeed. And one more bit of business before we get going. Some folks reached out very kindly about some of the Malagasy pronunciations from our Madagascar episode. So what we pronounced as Marina should have been more like Marine. And the word for a group of people that I pronounced as Fukonolona should have been more like Fukonolm. I hope I did that correctly or closer to correctly. And I really appreciate the corrections. And Glenn even told us in, in the original email um, that Malagasy was phonetic, except when it wasn't. So I found some places where it isn't. And I hope I did better on this attempt. Okay. Yeah. We got so much great, we got so much great mail about yeah. the Madagascar episode. We did. And it was wonderful. I think that other people are as excited as we are to talk and think about uh, Madagascar. And so we'll be doing that in the future. We will. We will absolutely go back there. Um, and so this week marks our 130th episode, which in pod years makes us teenagers. Oh. Pretty sure that's how that works. <laughs> or we saw a number that was a multiple of 13 and came up with a funny title <laughs> before the topic. And so welcome to our pod mitzvah. So we're following our episode on children and childhood in the ancient past with one dealing with how people in different places and times marked the transition into adulthood. It'll be a mixed bag of ritual, tradition, and probably some puberty flashbacks. Yikes. We're flash Fun forwards. for everyone. Yeah. Oh, well. If, sorry. Yeah. Sorry in advance. <laughs> yep. So this is part two of the child development adjacent episode sponsored by my mom. Thanks, mom. So hopefully it makes for some good teaching material and some good listening material for those of you who aren't currently studying psychology. Let's start by talking more broadly about what it might mean to become an adult, and then we can get to some specific examples. Oh, okay. I get it. This is when I went to the changing program with all the other girls in my class, right? Oh, no. Fifth grade. (laughs) I just just remember that... (laughs) Kenny in my class <laughs> that like asked our teacher like are we gonna learn about how bees hump <laughs> no Kenny like he had conflated the birds and the bees with health class and he was just really <laughs> mad about the fact that he might learn about bee reproduction um no oh, no I, I hope man. it's I hope it's I hope it's different from that. And I also hope it's different from my fifth grade experience where my health teacher didn't know how to spell larynx. And I was concerned. 
wonder how she's doing. Anyway, uh, so I thought we'd talk about how the criteria for becoming an adult are going to be culturally dependent, because yeah. that's a theme that we that we hit on in the previous episode, and it comes around again here. So if we start with the broadly American background that you and I both share, Amber, I've got this abstract from Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, who is currently a professor in the Department of Psychology at Clark University in Massachusetts. And so he coined the term emerging adulthood, which refers to the distinct phase between adolescence and young adulthood occurring from the ages of 18 to 25. And that was interesting to me, since when we talked about doing this topic, I had a different concept of the transitional age in mind. In my head, it was a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So there are different kind of types of criteria that we could um, discuss for becoming an adult, um, sort of in our framework. So like legal, behavioral, anatomical. So what would you say, when would you say a person becomes an adult, Amber? I think if we're talking about sort of a, like present day American society, mm-hmm. um, so that's the only one that I really have much to do with, um, <laughs> like in my yeah. past at least, yeah. um, that you become an adult when you reach the legal age of majority, unless you, unless you do something bad in the eyes of the law. So like there are people, it's really, I think it's through like the lens of the law. So, you know, like mm-hmm. if young people, like people younger than 18 commit crimes, that are seen as bad, that are seen as like especially heinous, um, then they're adults sooner. Yeah. Um, and like if they're according like, to the law, acor- yeah, according to the yeah, law and the, by the extension, yeah. I think society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if there are people that are seen as, I don't know, incapable of bad, like perhaps somebody with like an, like an intellectual disability or, yeah, okay. Um, or, but, you know, something that like they're seen as children longer, like they aren't really per, like treated or read as adults. And I think it, that this is also yeah. sort of like racialized and and perhaps like might also fall along like class lines that there are people that that don't get to be children as long. And there are people that are treated as children well into adulthood. And I think there's sort of like race and gender factors into that. Yeah, there are, that's the thing. There are all kinds of intersecting factors that influence societal perception of, of when that transition to adulthood occurs. So pulling from, so this is from a psychological perspective, this okay. Arnett, he's a, he's a psychologist. So, so thinking about like when their brains are adult. Well, that's the thing. Um, this paper that we're pulling from here is from, is it's a survey of um, college students and then slightly older, what we would say as adults, but um, this is like sort traditional of their aged college tradition, students? traditionally aged college students, and then also some a slightly older age bracket. And so, this is self-reported criteria for adulthood. So, hmm. Arnett writes. Conceptions of the transition to adulthood were examined using data from 346 college students aged 18 to 23 and 140 21 to 28-year-olds. So that's the the slightly older age bracket, which is not to say that you can't be in college 
from ages yeah. 21 to 28. Right. <laughs> um, participants indicated the characteristics necessary for a person to be considered an adult on a questionnaire containing 40 possible criteria. In both studies, as in both age groups, the top criteria endorsed emphasized aspects of individualism, including accept responsibility for the consequences of your actions, decide on own beliefs and values independently of parents or other influences, and establish a relationship with parents as an equal adult. <laughs> when does that happen? In contrast, role transitions typically associated with research on the transition to adulthood, such as finishing education, entering the labor force, marriage, and parenthood, were rejected as criteria for adulthood by a large majority in both studies. The results suggest that the current generation of young people in American society conceptualizes the transition to adulthood in intangible, gradual, psychological, and individualistic terms. And granted, this study was from... Um, I believe the late nineties, but it's still, I, I imagine that these trends are ongoing. I wasn't able to find any sort of later studies following up on this. So if we take Arnett's perspective, achieving adulthood again, specifically for Americans and presumably for Americans of a specific social class, because just because of how this study was conducted, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. has much you know, less. I mean, yeah. Like it, that's sort of like what is representative of like we, and it probably would be irresponsible for us to sort of extrapolate. Like, right. Exactly. To populations with very different lived experiences. But yeah. So for this particular sliver of lived experience, achieving adulthood has much less to do with checking off kind of game of life related boxes like marriage or employment and much more to do with highly individualistic or behavioral shifts. So as one more thought exercise, before we get into some cultural and historical examples, I want to brainstorm some events or criteria with you that might signal a person's coming of age. I sort of wanted to see if there's a common age when these things typically occur or if it's spread out over a longer span. So I, I looked into this and this sort of turned into something different than what I was originally um, planning for the script. I sort of, I, I went off down a rabbit hole, but I was looking at anatomical or physiological changes having to do with transition to adulthood and so specifically puberty. So for biological females, physical traits to do with puberty have to do with the onset of menstruation, which the first, uh, uh, first period is called menarche or me is it menarch? I don't know. I think it's menarche. Menarche. Um, there I is, I, I said yeah, that what? with such confidence. I, I think it, know. I think the end of it is an eta. Menarche. I'm going to just pronounce it my default French. Um, yes. The equivalent, um, in biological males is spermarche. Is it? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> I just learned that the other day because I was working huh. on the Dirt After Dark script and I was just like, oh boy. Well, that's a treat for me for later, I guess. No, we're not, we're not talking too much about sperm. Okay, that's great. Or are we? I don't know. So I learned a few things about our bodies ourselves. Um, there is no specific hormonal trigger known for the onset of menstruation, but it is linked to uh, attaining a certain percent body fat, which is around 17%. Mm. So, you know, kids don't have typically don't have a lot of um, body fat because they're growing. Their body is using that fat for fuel. Um, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of um, 
really hardcore athletes, like young athletes and especially dancers, for example, often will have delayed onset of, of menstruation because they haven't reached that percent of body fat. So the normal range of occurrence. And it's also the same thing for um, communities in which children participate in sort of like physical labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like if like whether it's agricultural labor or you know any kind of like strenuous labor that yeah same like idea would would keep their weight down like it would just mm-hmm. sort of the and it's any any a lot of exertion that, yeah any circumstance that that um keeps body fat below that sort of onset level is going to most likely result in delayed onset of menarche um the normal range of occurrence for the start of menstruation is between ages nine and 16, although that is dependent on many, many external factors. So again, lots of stuff going on that um, is not not as well understood as I thought it might be. I'm not a medical doctor, despite our text chain. Um, <laughs> I don't know why it hurts, Amber. Stop poking it. Um, <laughs> on the other side of things... There is puberty for young biological males. And one of those things is the voice deepening. So the, and I, this was really interesting. I didn't, had no idea how this worked. And so I looked it up and now I know how it works. And then I'm going to tell you about how the ancient Greeks thought it worked. And it's very oh, funny. No. There's an owl in there and the owl no. <laughs> turns its head. No. And as it turns its head, it winds your vocal cords. It's almost as silly as that. Uh. The vocal cords, also known as vocal folds. So for the record, I, this is the correct thing that I'm telling you now. Okay. This is, this is the, are dual strips of cartilage and other tissues in the voice box, which is also called your larynx or larynx. The vocal folds vibrate to what? produce basic sounds. The, my health teacher thought it was larynx. It's not. It's larynx. It's not larynx, is it? It's not. Nope. The vocal folds vibrate to produce the basic sounds. And then you modify these sounds with your mouth and sort of your tongue and etc. to make words. The longer and thicker the vocal cords, the lower pitched the sounds. So, at- so words start at puberty? <laughs> yeah, you can't make words until... No, it went on... <laughs> Well, you could just go, ah, and not make words, but (laughs) your vocal cords would still be affected by puberty if you were biologically male and only went, ah. (laughs) So at birth, boys and girls' vocal folds are similar lengths, measuring about two millimeters long, so small, but they continue to grow as the child grows. And so for girls, the vocal folds grow 0.4 millimeters in length each year, but boys' vocal folds grow 0.7 millimeters in length for the same period, almost twice as much. So by the time boys start to reach maturity, their voice starts to get deeper because those vocal folds are still growing, whereas for girls, they're not growing quite as fast. Okay, so um, it isn't something that happens. I think it's related to major growth spurts like okay. the, what you start to get in puberty where things just start growing really fast and so and your bones hurt okay so the like so it's not like someone's voice cracks and that's like it happening i actually don't know why i think i think the voice cracking just has to do with like adjustment to the growth of the vocal cords okay. i mean my understanding of this was also limited we can we can both tell that the changing program like 
didn't take for me. <laughs> like, and okay, so reading about this rang a tiny little bell no. way, 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 way back <laughs> in my oh, no. in my brain. And I Somebody's remembered watched something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I remembered something that I did, in fact, see on QI. And it was a study that won the Ig Nobel Prize. Um, like back in the early 2000s or 90s. And so this was research done by Ian McManus. And so it was basically the, his research specifically was on the depiction of the scrotum in Greek classical and pre-classical art. So, well, let me just, you know what, let me just read the abstract to his paper presenting this research and we can take it from there. The scrotum in humans is asymmetric, the right testicle being visibly higher than the left in most men. Paradoxically, it is also the case that the right testicle is somewhat larger rather than smaller, as might be expected. So I guess placement isn't dependent on gravity. Greek classical and pre-classical art, which took great care in its attention to anatomical detail, correctly portrayed the right testicle as higher, but then incorrectly portrayed the left testicle as visibly larger. The implication is that the Greeks used a simple mechanical theory, the left testicle being thought to be lower because it was larger and hence more subject to the pull of gravity. So moving in my own words, the theory also extended to the effect on the male voice, literally suggesting that the vocal cords and testicles were connected, suggesting that as the testicles grew, especially that heavy left one, their pull on the vocal cord increased, lengthening the cord and deepening the voice. And that's, that was written about like that. I think some, some Greek like wrote to that effect and was like, yes, this is how this works. So that I just, enjoyed remembering that I'm, and and wanted to share with everyone do think i would prefer if it were an owl <laughs> uh clarification is the owl in the voice box or in the scrotum uh, i was just thinking like sort of mid tummy okay somewhere like somewhere in like wherever our uterus goes when we Putting like the do man work. in menagerie like when we like when we like do work or think about math or something like in our uterus and our, and our uterus starts to wander I, not everyone is going to know about that. So now we have to clarify. So um, the who, word hysteria and the word it, uterus are connected. Well, I mean, like Greeks and medieval people. And no, but somebody wrote about that. Like I read it. Was it Galen? I know. I think, I think it was Galen. That sounds like him. Yeah. So a um, the womb was prone to excitement and like a small animal would often wander about the female body. Spurred on by various things like too much excitement or... It was Plato. Was it Plato? Well, it was Galen. No, Galen definitely, because Galen wrote about gynecology. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, it was Plato and um, it was discussed by Sorinus. (laughs) Yeah, your friend and mine, (laughs) medical doctor Sorinus. (laughs) Eretaeus and then Galen. Okay, Um, well, a distinguished pedigree, but... Also, um... Uh, just real quick sidebar. People also ask, does the uterus suffocate itself? When? How? What? No. Short answer, no. Everyone on Google. I'm not a medical doctor, again, but no. I don't know. Okay. Hippocrates would like to disagree with you. Oh, he's dead. Well, let's move on, huh? You brought it uh, up. <laughs> I did. And I regret it. So let's uh, let's move on to a different part of the body altogether. 
Um, There's another significant body change that happens over a much longer period of the average human's life from around age six to age 12 or 13. And that is losing your two furs. Yeah. Losing your baby teeth. Do you remember that, that period? Do you, do you remember, do you have specific tooth losing memories? Um, I have a few. Did Um, you ever do the thing with the string in the door? Yeah, it didn't work. Okay. Um, Just ripped off the doorknob. (laughs) (laughs) No, also I was like, I went to throw and then I was like, push. (laughs) This is going to (laughs) hurt. No. Um, Well, as anybody who may have seen the photo of me and my mom on a boat. Oh, so cute. um, I didn't lose my front teeth at the same time. It was like a couple years. And so I had like, (laughs) I had sort of like goofy teeth. Um, but yeah, I remember losing my teeth. I remember we did like a little craftivity and, um, I think I lost my first one in kindergarten. Um, mm-hmm. and I was it's like so right excited age. to have gotten on the board cause there was like a point on the tooth. board. Yeah. It's I had a belly. point on the board. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I also have a very distinct memory of finding my baby teeth later. Um, mm. your mom kept them. My dad kept them. Yeah. Uh. My dad's a tooth keeper. Um, he's also kept their dog's baby teeth. <laughs> Which is sort of sweet, but also... Uh, they're all down in the gun safe, so just, like, keeping our teeth. Okay, well... Um, but I wasn't... I didn't get, like, fair market value off of my teeth from the tooth fairy. Mm. And the tooth fairy is just something that... We're going to get into that. What's up with that? Well, let's find out. <laughs> yeah, I just remember getting yelled at a lot because I would not stop wiggling my teeth. Oh, like when once they got a little bit loose, yeah, my finger was always up up in there, and I got I got not yelled at, but just like stop, get your finger out of your mouth. It freaked me out to a degree that like I still have dreams about losing my teeth. It's like a regular thing for me. It's a really common anxiety dream. Yeah, yeah. I I also have constant teeth dreams. Anyway, in Northern Europe, (laughs) there was a a tradition of tandfe. Or tooth fee, which was paid when a child lost their first tooth. This tradition is recorded in writings as early as the Eddas, which are around 1200 CE, which are the earliest written record of Norse and Northern European traditions. So see, uh, thanks Viking from uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. In the Norse culture, children's teeth and other articles belonging to children were said to bring good luck in battle and Scandinavian warriors hung children's teeth on a string around their necks. I think this is more likely like in a pouch around their necks because I was trying to think because when when you when you were well that's the thing when you're a child and you lose teeth it's because the roots have dissolved like the roots essentially sort of resorb back into your bone and so I don't know maybe you can get a hole through that tiny little nubbin of tooth but probably like a little bead either it was a little bead I wasn't clear from this from this article but either a little bead or in a pouch of some sort but yeah yeah that is one of that is like equal parts cute like sweet yeah and so creepy don't tell your dad he'll do it little, little <laughs> nugget teeth put, he put lexi's little tiny dog twofers bag Aww. around his neck Aww. uh during the middle ages other superstitions arose surrounding children's teeth In England, for example, children were instructed to burn their baby teeth in order to save the child from hardship in the afterlife. Children who did not consign their baby teeth to the flames would spend eternity searching for them in the afterlife. Where's my teeth? Surely child ghosts have better things to do. 
Fear of witches was another witches. reason to bury or burn teeth. In medieval Europe, it was thought that if a witch were to get a hold of one's teeth, it could lead them to having total power over them. Yeah, it's the idea of sympathetic magic, where if you have like a piece of something, you can affect harm or good on the larger something. The modern incarnation of these traditions to an actual tooth fairy has been traced to a 1908 household hints item in the Chicago Daily Tribune, which says, Many a refractory child will allow a loose tooth to be removed if he knows about the tooth fairy. If he takes his little tooth and puts it under the pillow when he goes to bed, the tooth fairy will come in the night and take it away, and in its place will leave some little gift. It's a nice plan for mothers to visit the five-cent counter and lay in a supply of articles to be used on such occasions. That's what the tooth fairy always did for me. I always got, you know, small items or books, but usually in a scavenger hunt because I think my parents knew that if it was much easier to hide a note under my pillow than something bulky like a book you know the note so would the, lead somewhere so that the tooth I could fairy just like played games with you like yeah a little, was tooth, it a little the ransom tooth fairy note? played played mind games yeah if you want your present <laughs> no it was it was usually very sweet it was like, tooth fairy I gave you all the clues <laughs> Um, Uh, There are some other tooth takers out there. There's the Ratoncito Perez or Perez Mouse. Um, And it is a figure similar, which I glazed over figure skater. And I was like, oh, (laughs) yeah, Uh, a little figure skating mouse. um, Nope. Is a figure similar to the Tooth Fairy, originating in Madrid in 1894. As is traditional in some English-speaking countries, when a child loses a tooth, it is customary for them to place it under the pillow so that Ratoncito Perez will exchange it for a gift. In Italy, the Tooth Fairy, the Fatina del Denti, Fatina dei Denti, <laughs> is, off, is often replaced by a small mouse named Topolino. This is about to get much less cute. I saw her name and I was like, no. <laughs> In some areas, it's the same The same role is held by St. Apollonia, known as Santa Polonia in Veneto. Um, so it's because St. Apollonia's legendary martyrdom involved having her teeth broken. Um, so she's frequently depicted artistically holding a tooth and is considered the patron saint of dentistry and those with toothache and dental problems. You wouldn't so at believe least they how managed many... to like they managed to like do one as sort of like a we're going to do this representative and yeah. not just like, oh, here's me wearing my skin as a cloak over my arm because I was afraid. Yeah. Like that's... And you wouldn't believe. So I was looking up just I wanted information on tooth fairy esque traditions. You would not believe how many of these things are hosted by dental practices. <laughs> Nearly all of them. That's where nearly all of these facts I were found first until I traced them back and found legit sources. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I just didn't realize that they were so, you know, lore based. In France and French speaking Belgium, this character is called La Petite Souris. The little mouse. Say yep. little mouse. Little mouse. Uh, from parts of lowland scotland comes a tradition similar to the fairy mouse a white fairy rat who purchases <laughs> children's teeth with coins which what's a fairy they have your teeth <laughs> scottish <laughs> accent needs work 
In Catalonia, maybe they know it's like it's a Scottish fey rat accent. Mm. It works. Squeak, squeaking. In Catalonia, the most popular would be Els Anglets and also Les Animetes, little souls. Mm -hmm. Um, And as in the other countries, the tooth is placed under the pillow in exchange for a coin or a little token. In Japan, a different variation calls for lost upper teeth to be thrown straight down to the ground and lower teeth straight up into the air. The idea is that incoming teeth will grow in straight, I guess. Well, you you teach the lower teeth, like, go up. Like this. Yeah, and upper teeth go down. Um, In South Korea, the common practice is to throw both upper and lower teeth on the roof. Um, The practice is rooted around the Korean national bird, the magpie. It is said that if the magpie finds a tooth on the roof, it will bring good luck or a gift. Some scholars think the myth derived from a middle Korean word for magpies that sounds similar to new teeth. Or because in In Korean, Korean. (laughs) not in English. (laughs) Gosh, that's some that's some like Zachariah Sitchin level like philology Mm -hmm. of being Mm -hmm. like this word sounds like new teeth. That Mm. works. Got it. That's not what it is in this language. (laughs) Um, Or because in Korean mythology, magpies were thought to be messengers between gods and humans. So um, in countries including what is today Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and Sudan, there is a tradition of throwing a baby tooth up into the sky, to the sun, or to Allah. This tradition may originate in a pre-Islamic offering and dates back to at least the 13th century. Um, it is also mentioned by Isbin Hibat al-Hadid in the 13th century. So, see, see, Yes. Yeah. So that's like the earliest mention of it is in mm. writings by that person. All right. So let's take a break for an ad. Check all of our teeth. Make sure they're still in there. Um, or maybe they're in your gun safe downstairs. Go check. Um, and come back to talk about some traditional rites of passage. Mm-hmm. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we're going to take a look at some rites of passage from around the world. 
Often cultures will have different types of ceremonies for male and female children. So we'll try to represent both groups here, though not always from the same culture, just trying to get an even mix. But let's talk generally first about how a rite of passage works to give some cultural and psychological context. Rites of passage have three phases, separation, liminal, and incorporation. In the first phase, people withdraw from their current status and prepare to move from one place or status to another. The first phase of separation comprises symbolic behavior signifying the detachment of the individual or group from an earlier fixed point in the social structure. So there's often a detachment or cutting away from the former self in this phase, which is signified in symbolic actions and rituals. For example, the cutting of the hair for a person who has just joined the army. So they're cutting away the former self, the civilian. So it's a rite of passage. Uh, the transition, the liminal phase, is a period between states during which one has left one place or state but has not yet entered or joined the next, like the Britney Spears song. <laughs> In the third phase, reaggregation or incorporation the passage is completed through actions taken by the ritual subject. Having completed the rite and assumed their new identity, one re-enters society with one's new status. These rituals create feelings of affiliation and a sense of validity and acceptance for the individual and the group, respectively. Yeah, so for the individual, it's like, now I've earned my place here in this new group. And then for the group, it's like, this person deserves to be here. They're, they have done whatever needs to be done to, to join our group. So it's a, it's a way of sort of uh, enhancing social cohesion. Mm -hmm. So now some examples, and we won't be able to touch on every possible example, or this episode would be a week long. So I have just chosen a few. First up, the Satare Mawe are a tribe that lives in the Amazon rainforest of Brazil, and they believe that any boy who wants to become a man must experience the worst pain the jungle has to offer, the sting of Paraponera clavata, the bullet ant. The bullet ant is a species of ant with the most painful sting of any insect. True to its name, it supposedly has a sting that feels comparable to being shot with a bullet. Dr. Justin Schmidt, an entomologist and research director of the Southwest Biological Institute, invented, God bless him, the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, which categorizes the level of pain felt when stung by Hymenoptera, an order of insects that includes wasps, bees, and ants. The bullet ant ranks one of the two highest on his scale. It's one of the only two uh, to score a four. The pain of the bullet ant sting continues for up to 24 hours, receding and returning regularly. For their manhood ritual, the Maues submerge hundreds of bullet ants in a natural sedative, rendering them unconscious. The large ants, while unconscious, are then woven into gloves made of leaves, with their stingers pointing towards the inside of the glove. When the ants regain consciousness, these gloves are then placed on the hands of young men undergoing the ritual. They are mad when they regain consciousness. I'm in a glove! Why? The boy must then keep the gloves on his hand for a full five minutes while the hundreds of ants repeatedly sting him. The bullet ant glove is then removed, but the boy will likely be in pain and shake uncontrollably for hours. He may even experience muscle paralysis, disorientation, and hallucinations. And this is just from the pain. This is like the body's reaction to the pain. There are, fortunately, at least according to the articles that I read, no long-term effects from the actual toxin in the, in the sting. Um, it's just the severe pain 
causes hallucinations and things like that. To fully complete this initiation and be accepted as a man by the tribe, the boys must endure this practice a total of 20 times over the course of months or even years. Wow. Moving to from uh, Brazil to Japan, Seiju no Hi, or Coming of Age Day, is one of the most important national holidays in Japan, not only due to the scale of preparation and publicity, but also because it's one of the most colorful and picturesque events throughout the year. The holiday, held on the second Monday of January, celebrates young people who have reached the age of 20 in the past year, Japan's official age of majority. It's a rite of passage and an opportunity for adults to remind future generations that maturity is not only about the ability to legally drive, consume alcohol, and vote. (laughs) There are several theories regarding the holiday's origins, including some that date back as far as the 700s CE, when a young prince presented his clothes and hair as a sign of becoming an adult. However, the official holiday began in 1946, when a small city in Saitama, which is currently Warabi City, organized an event to give hope to younger generations after World War II. Other municipalities began to follow, and in 1948, Seijin no Hi was established as a national holiday to commemorate young adulthood and celebrate their journey to a new life on their own. Before officially bidding goodbye to their childhood, 20-year-olds registered in the area are invited by each municipality to a large ceremony at its local city hall. A series of lectures are conducted by established adults, key city hall figures for the most part, on what it means to be an adult and the responsibilities young people have for building the future. Participants are usually given small gifts and souvenirs of the event, and the ceremony is followed by parties and separate family events. The clothing worn is crucial for this holiday and involves much preparation, especially for the young ladies. Women usually wear furisore, a long-sleeved kimono worn by unmarried women. Hair salons and photo studios began running begin running campaigns months ahead of time. It's like prom, but it's like adult prom, grown up prom. Offering hairstyling and special photo options to mark the event. Most young men would also wear traditional Japanese clothing, hakama, though increasingly now they turn to Western style suits or other variations. Wow. So, um, staying in the environs of the Pacific, let's move on to Vanuatu. Every year from April to June, the Vanuatan island of Pentecost, traditional Vanuatan name, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, hosts one of the most spectacular and death-defying cultural ceremonies ever conceived. I mean, you say it like that, but yeah, actually. (laughs) Uh, Known as the Nagol, it sees men climb flimsy 100-foot wooden towers and dive headfirst into empty space. With nothing to break their fall but vines tied to their ankles. So it's like, yep, base jumping? Is that base jumping? Bungee. It's like bungee jumping, but okay. less springy. Base jumping, you have a, a floaty suit. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Like a like a um like a, a flying squirrel type suit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's got like flaps. a wingsuit? That's the one. A flying squirrel suit. suit. Okay, so European missionaries banned land diving on Pentecost in the early 20th century, but the priests never reached the rugged southeast corner of the island where the ritual was passed on to successive generations. The ritual is said to have its roots in a legend about a dysfunctional marriage. As the story goes, a woman decided to flee into the jungle to escape daily confrontations with her spouse. Hotly pursued by her husband, she ran up a tree, then tied to a vine, then tied a vine around her ankle and jumped from the top, landing safely. 
The husband followed suit, but without the aid of the vine, he hit the ground with a fatal splat. Inspired by the woman's act of defiance, the women of Pentecost began land diving for fun. Uh, But uneasy was seeing the women dangling from trees in compromising positions. The island's men called an end to their fun and stole the activity for themselves. Over time, the land diving moved from trees to purpose-built towers. It's also been transformed into a ritual rife with religious symbolism. The success of the all-important yam harvest is said to depend on the courage of the previous year's divers. Diving is only permitted in the two months following the wet season to ensure the vines contain the water that lends them elasticity and strength. And you don't want a dry vine. Yeah. Adherence to religious customs is also considered essential to a diver's safety. While the tower is being constructed, the divers live together in men-only huts and avoid contact with women, a ritual said to clarify their minds. It probably won't surprise you to learn, listeners, that this festival inspired the sport of bungee jumping. Yep. The word bungee originates from the West Country dialect of the English language, meaning anything thick and squat. Feeling a bit bungee today. (laughs) (laughs) it's good to know though (laughs) i look like a bungee in these jeans (laughs) next we've got an example that takes place in multiple parts of western and central africa on different occasions throughout a person's life like at funerals weddings and when an infant reaches four months of age or when a child reaches adolescence um so this is the okuyi or mekuyo So our understanding here is that these are the names of two different characters or spiritual figures. uh, And this can be traced back to Gabon. Yeah. Everything that I read, it was unclear whether the dance itself was called the Makuyo and then the character who does it is the Okuyi or they're both characters or they're interchangeable names for the same ritual. It was, I I would love if someone would reach out and and clarify that for us because I wasn't able to find any definitive information. Um, The typical Okui performer wears a large loose costume that resembles the spirit of the clan members ancestors. The ancestors are illustrated by the dancers as tranquil and serene. That's nice. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Mm -hmm. I want to think of, I want to think of my departed ancestors that way. Okuyi costumes are typically made from frills formed from the raffia palm uh, with an outfit underneath made of canvas or burlap. The thick textile forms the suit for of the the thick textile forms the suit for the performer. Performers wear black socks made of cotton on their feet as well as on their hands. Every dancer carries through his presentation wearing a mask made of a soft local wood. The the face masks on each performer is essential to identify each role in the performance. So the design has been kept constant since the 19th century. That's that's when it's been like the earliest it was sort of recorded. Okay. So it may have been kept constant well before that. It's just, Yeah. yeah. Okay. The sign is a black chin and black forehead with white covering the cheeks and temples. Sometimes the dark red eyes remain closed as a sign that the person represented is dead. However, this contrasts with masks from Equatorial Guinea as the face masks range from geometrical forms to human faces. The majority of the masks have the eyes closed and a few have them open. Some masks have a mirror attached to the forehead, which is used as a talisman. Uh, Women are the key voices of the chorus in the Makuyo dances. 
The lyrics of the melodies the choir sings educate the listeners about everyday life possessions. Another common theme is the history of kinfolk, or events that have happened to important people of the community in the past. The songs are an important way to communicate historical knowledge. In a funereal context, the makuyo music and dance is used to break the mourning period and bring hope to all the mourners for the future. It's nice. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah, and this is like a type of ritual that is that I think probably, I don't know, again, would love for someone to reach out to the dirt podcast at gmail.com. But this is a ritual or a type of ritual that happens at lots of different life events. So I would presume that the type of thing that you do at a funeral is going to be slightly different from the type of thing you do to celebrate an infant turning four months old. But I don't, I don't know that for certain, but I think it's just sort of, and commemorating the ancestors dancing kind of um strengthening bonds in the community that sort of general act a few others before we wrap up just briefly in mali fulani women are ushered into womanhood by practicing chudi or getting facial tattoos the ritual has young girls getting their lip area tattooed with black as a sign of cultural identity and beauty the idea is to look more attractive to a prospective husband as the young girl endures the pain of being tattooed, women from the village gather around to watch, singing, clapping, chanting, and beating drums throughout the process. Sounds kind of fun and rowdy. Yeah, keep those spirits up. In Bali. Molly to Bali. From Molly to Bali. Nope. On the Molly Bali trolley. Oh, golly. Oh, golly. <laughs> In Bali, Mepandes is a teeth filing ceremony that involves removing the sharp edges of canine teeth and filing the front six teeth flat to symbolically rid one of negativity like lust, greed, anger, and jealousy. The procedure can only be performed on girls who've had their first period. Seems uncomfortable, but not making a cultural judgment, just thinking about my own teeth. In North Baffin Island, Inuit boys have traditionally gone out to the wilderness with their fathers between the ages of 11 and 12 to test their hunting skills and acclimatize to the harsh Arctic weather. And this is specifically people who follow a, a traditional lifestyle because some people uh, sort of move away from that, but some people still live traditionally. As part of that tradition, a shaman would be called to open the lines of communication between men and animals. Nowadays, this tradition has been extended to young girls as well, and out camps are established away from the community in order for traditional skills to be passed down and practiced by young men and women. That's just a whirlwind tour of, of some of these different coming-of-age ritual. So let's take one more quick ad break and then talk about an example from the archaeological record, since this is an archaeology show. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's 
com slash shop and click on the link. Well, hello there. Welcome Hi. Back. Welcome back. As a final example of a rite of passage, we're looking at a 2001 article by Rosemary Joyce titled Girling the Girl and Boying the Boy, the Production of Adulthood in Ancient Mesoamerica. Um, and so this is from a section titled The Existential Status of Aztec Children. Do they exist? Mm. Joyce writes, 16th century CE Nahuatl texts describe Aztec infants initially as raw materials that needed to be worked into specific forms. Did you know that it used to be thought that bear mothers like licked, like bears were born as sort of shapeless blobs of bear putty and the moms licked them into bear shape? That's the only way they could get that cute. (laughs) but also if you've ever seen a newborn small mammal it does look pretty shapeless little little, like a lump of mammal potty yeah a little lump of mammal bean anyway back to to rosemary joy life cycle rituals were the context where continued refinement of this raw material was effected (laughs) before and at birth the child was described as a precious product made by the gods I really like this. Um, this is a, a quote from a codex. Quote. Yeah. Okay. The one who has arrived, the precious necklace, the precious feather, the baby, which has been flaked off here. Our Lord, the creator, the master, Quetzalcoatl, flakes a precious necklace, places a precious feather here on your neck, at your breast, in your hands, he places a precious necklace. Isn't that nice? Babies. You got a little baby around your neck. I mean, not like around your neck, but like. That's what this where they hold on yeah. to, you no, know. I, yeah, yeah. Oh, so um, male babies were given items related to their expected role: tiny shields, tiny bow and arrow, a little loincloth, and a baby cape. <laughs> Female babies were given the equipment of women: the spinning whirl, the weaving sword. Not a weapon, the thing that you yeah attach the, uh... the 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 oh shuttle. Yes. 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 Good job. Shuttle. Um, the reed basket, the spinning bowl, the skeins, and her little skirt and shift. Um, Aztec ch- children went through various rituals of body modification throughout their childhoods, beginning with piercing their ears, which was typically a rowdy community festival with lots of food and drink. Not Claire's. Not Claire's with a piercing gun. With a gun, yeah. Um, these piercings would often also be gradually gauged wider to accommodate adult earplugs. Sometimes this was done with a piercing through the lower lip as well. Yeah, a librette. The hair of Aztec youths also signaled their age or maturity. Up until around age 11, boys and girls had long locks of hair at the backs of their heads. For males, that lock was a symbol of his childhood and would be removed when he first took a captive in battle. After that point, another tuft tuft was left to grow at the right side of his head, and that would get cut short to mark any further captives taken in battle. It's like when you graduate and you change and you You pull your your tassel from one side to the other. Uh, Women typically kept their hair long and bound around their heads in various styles that might indicate if a young woman was marriageable or if she had born children. 
The article looks at depictions of Aztec youths in art and in descriptions of Spanish codices and in burials and determines that especially with body modifications, there were some, like those large earplugs, that were specifically linked to adulthood. So in Aztec culture, it seems like there was almost a constant state of transition from childhood to adulthood commemorated at various points by changes in appearance, which I'm sure many teens and former teens can relate to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Phases. <laughs> so listeners, there are tons of other examples of coming-of-age rituals out there. Bar and bat mitzvahs, quinceañeras, and confirmations are some that are explicitly linked to religion, as is Khatam al-Quran, a prestigious ritual celebrated by Malaysian girls once they reach the age of 11. The ceremony demonstrates their growing maturity at their local mosque. Girls spend years preparing for this day, reviewing the Quran, so they can recite the final chapter before friends and family. There's the Amish Rumspringa and Rus, the Norwegian equivalent, where teens are encouraged to go rage and sow their wild oats for a year before re-entering society as, one hopes, mature adults. Yeah. So there are countless social categories and phases of life that humans move between. And it's really fascinating to think about how concepts are embodied in people in objects and in actions that we take. So with all of that to mull over, we'll wrap it up there, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your ears next week, like Aztec earplugs with new content, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. You can also find us over on social media, uh, on Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod, and last week we shared cute photos of us as children. Yep, we're really cute. And all of those feeds, plus our merch store and all our archived episodes and more are at thedirtpod.com. And and truly, if you want to contact us, and ideally with constructive criticism uh, about <laughs> things that we've talked about and, and give us more detail. We would, we would love to, uh, to hear from you and we would just love to hear from you in general. Say hi. Yeah. Like messages. Yeah. yeah. Thanks everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.